Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Friday, December the 25th, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silver. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silver Media. And you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silver at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silver at talkingmetspodcast.com. Well, Merry Christmas. Talking Mets fans, and I bring this program to you on the holiday. I had a chance a couple of weeks ago to catch up with the author of a new book, Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life, Bill Mannon, uh, award-winning author of the New York Times bestseller Steinbrenner. I know that's a Yankees book, but uh, longtime journalist for the Daily News, some great stories, mainly covering, obviously, the Yankees, but cover the Mets, too, and Tom Seaver, and what better way to give back to the audience that has supported this program and has been so loyal and, and given me so much cheer throughout 2020, a, a difficult year for all of us on many levels, than to give you a really interesting podcast and put aside the rebuilding of the team, the hot stove, the front office, all the stuff that we normally talk about. Let's just put it aside. Let's take a little break. Let's take a vacation and go back into Mets history and learn a little bit about the most popular, the best, probably, no doubt about it, 
player in the team history, Tom Seaver. The book is Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life. And you may ask, well, what am I going to learn about Tom Seaver that I don't already know, especially those that watch them pitch, come up from that generation? Well, Bill Madden was very close with Seaver on a personal level, and he got to interact with Seaver over the last 15 or so years. Think about how much you haven't heard from Seaver since he stopped broadcasting Mets games back in 2005. And I think as you listen to Bill, who's a great storyteller, and I think that's one of the things that has really been lost as we get deeper and deeper into media 2020, 2021, is that the storytelling aspect sometimes gets put to the side because we want data and we want facts and we want validation, and those are all important things. And and certainly sometimes storytelling gets us into trouble when we try to evaluate and understand what's going on with the team. But from a standpoint of storytelling, you'll hear from Bill Madden. I had a chance to catch up with him. Great anecdotes, great stories. I think you'll understand a little bit more about Tom Seaver, maybe in a way that the public media persona didn't give you. And you'll hear about some of the complexities with his relationship with the Mets organization that unfortunately were not resolved and pretty much existed until uh, the day he passed this past summer in August. So, yes, we did do a Tom Seaver program, a tribute to Tom Seaver back right around, uh, what was it, Labor Day or around there. And uh, we had a lot of fun doing that, looking back at this great Met. Well, let's look back one more time before we close the book on 2020 with Bill Madden, author of the book, Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life, right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at mikesilva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, talkingmetspodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon. And enjoy the rest of the show. I'm joined by Bill Madden. You guys know him, best-selling author, longtime New York Daily News journalist, author of many books. I actually had a chance to talk to Bill about 10 years ago when the George Steinbrenner book came out. That's a great one. This one, Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life, promises to be just as good and for Mets fans even better and Bill happy holidays um a long-term project obviously not you know sad times with Tom passing this past summer but what better New York sports icon to dive into than Tom Seaver yeah thanks Mike uh in contrast to the Steinbrenner book I've been telling everybody the Steinbrenner book was a labor of labor whereas this book was a labor of love because I had a relationship with Seaver. And it, it, this is a deeply personal book because uh, there's a lot more about Tom Seaver in here than just his Hall of Fame statistics and his Hall of Fame career. Uh, there's a lot about his personal life and a lot of things about Tom Seaver that the average Mets fan didn't know. And, you know, I did take that away reading the book. And, and let me ask you this. You don't want to give things away, but Going, you know, you covered Tom, so maybe you knew a lot about him. You have a relationship with him. But is there one or two things that you took away doing this project that or about Tom that you're like, wow, it really, you know, it was surprising to you or, you know, something that, you know, potentially you didn't expect going into the project? Well, there's one anecdote in the book in particular. It's from, uh, it's in the Fresno chapter, which is all about his growing up years in Fresno, California. 
And I talked to uh, a number of his lifelong friends, and they were lifelong friends from Fresno. He invited all these guys, there were five or six of them, and he invited all of them to his Hall of Fame induction in 1992. That's how loyal he was to these guys. And uh, one of them, his name was Larry Woods, told me this story about another one of their friends, a guy named Don Ranero. He was a little Italian guy, played shortstop receiver um, against him in Little League, and then he was his teammate at Fresno City Junior College. And they became really tight friends through the years. Probably he was closer to Don Ranero than he was with any of the other guys. And um, in, um, when, he, when he was a broadcaster for the Yankees, Seaver, I'm talking about, uh, he invited Larry Woods, the friend who told me the story, he invited Larry and Don Ranero and another guy up to Oakland, to meet him in Oakland and join him in the broadcast booth with Rizzuto. Well, naturally, Ranero being a little guy that always had to prove himself hmm. and Rizzuto, they hit it off immediately and they start, Rizzuto told his famous story about how he showed up for a, a Dodger uh, tryout camp and Casey Stengel, who was the manager of the Dodgers at the time, told him to go get a shoe, go get a shoe box. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, they hit it off really well. And then a couple of years after that, Renero was in a terrible accident. He was riding his bike in the foothills of Fresno and he got hit from behind by a drunken driver. He flew up in the air and landed on his head on top of a car and he was in a coma. It was a stage, I think it was, just, they called it a stage three coma. It was about stage three brain damage, I should say. And he was permanently in a coma. Anyway, Seaver was in New York when he heard about the accident. He flew out to Fresno and he and Larry Woods went over to see Renero and he was laying there. In fact, there's a picture of him in the book with Seaver sitting next to him. And uh, it was a just a very traumatic experience for Seaver. He, at one point, he even took his 69 Mets ring off and he put it on Renero's finger and he tried to talk to him and try to, but nothing, there was no response. And finally, Seaver left the room with Woods and he turned to Larry and he said, I don't ever want to see him like this again. And, but he went back to New York and he, he was determined to have some sort of connection with Renero because they were so close, but he didn't want to just call him on the phone and not even know if the guy could hear him or whatever. So he came up with this idea. He got a, he got a hold of the scooter, Rizzuto, and he said, I want you to do me a favor. I want to make a tape with you that we're going to play for Renero. Do you remember him? And Rizzuto said, oh yeah, I remember him. So they did this tape and uh, it, I have it word for word and it was really hilarious. It was like the Rizzuto and Siva were in a broadcast booth together and they're doing a broadcast. And you know how Rizzuto would be yep. off on many different directions. And on right. this one, it was all about Renero and they're trying to pep him up and all this other stuff. Right. And so he sent, the, he sent the tape to Larry Woods, and Larry Woods, who was in the radio business, edited the tape and brought it over and, and went over to Renero's bedside and put the tape, tape recorder up to his ear and turned it on and took his hand and started playing the tape. And as the, Larry tells his story, as the tape kept playing, all of a sudden Renero started gripping his hand. Tighter wow. and tighter and tighter until all of a sudden he opened his eyes and started crying. And it was the first time he had any response to anybody. 
Wow. And uh, as I wrote in the book, I said, this was the best Seaver could do to tell his friend how much he loved him. Wow. And that's a very, Bill, that's that's the point of the book, I think. And, and the book is Tom Seaver, Terrific Life. It's a human element. In an era where we're getting so involved in stats and numbers, you know, one of the things you, as a, as a longtime journalist, it was about storytelling. That was what the Steinbrenner book, so many great stories. And Seaver, you know, I'm 43, so I didn't see Seaver pitch in his prime. But, you know, I remember him as a broadcaster. And, you know, he. I've talked to people who covered him. He could be tough to cover when you were in that clubhouse. He could be a little arrogant. Um, yep. He was this larger than life guy. There's a very human side to him that I think it sounds like you tried to bring out to the fans. This is not just Tom Terrific, the Mets, you know, the Hall of Famer. You're trying to show them who Tom really was behind the curtain, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because the, the public image of Seaver, especially with the media, was he was kind of standoffish. He was not uh, he was not an easy interview, especially later on in his career after uh, after he left the Mets. And uh, he was arrogant would be a word that you could describe of him. So I tried to make this a fair book, even though he was a friend. And, I, you know, it, this was a very personal book for me. Uh, my favorite, another, you know, on a, on a lighter side, my favorite chapter in the book may be the one on the White Sox when he goes to the White Sox and he has his first confrontation with Tony La Russa, who was an all-time, all very different manager than he was used to. He, I mean, he was used to the traditional managers, Gil Hodges, Sparky Anderson, sure. guys who were, you know, disciplinarians and uh, they were, you know, they basically were book managers, so to speak. La Russa, however, was the great innovator. And Seaver tells his story about his first First start ever for the White Sox. He, he gets to the fifth inning. He's losing by, he's losing, I think, by a run. And he hadn't pitched particularly well, but he, and he's, he gets in trouble in the fifth inning. There's one out and his uh, runner's on first and third. And all of a sudden, La Russa comes to the mound. And he looks at him. He says, what is going on here? And La Russa takes him out of the game. He couldn't believe it. This is a guy, wow. this is a guy who prided himself in complete sure. games. Sure. I mean, he pitched 231 of them in his career. Right. So anyway, he comes out of the game and he goes into, and, and, and La Russa brings in a left-handed pitcher named Juan Agosto, as Seaver called him, Juan Disgusto. I he remember was, Juan Agosto. Huh? <laughs> Agosto comes into the game. First guy he faces, he walks. The second guy he faces hits a bases-clearing double. And the game is lost for all intents and purposes. Seaver, as soon as he saw the double, he goes into the clubhouse got dressed, got in his car, and drove home. He was so furious. And the next day, they had, they went on the road to Milwaukee. And before the game, the pitchers were all in the outfield shagging flies. But Seaver is still seething. And LaRusso's in the dugout, and he's looking out at Seaver. And as he's looking out, Seaver's letting all these fly balls drop in front of him. As Seaver described, it was like a fruit, it was like a fruit orchard, oranges everywhere. Sure. Dropping out of the trees. So... LaRusso is staring out there, and he's Seaver's staring at LaRusso. And Dave Duncan, the pitching coach, says to LaRusso, I think he wants to talk to you. And LaRusso says, Why? What do you think? He says, No, he wants you to go out there, Tony. You got to go out there. So LaRusso goes out there, and Seaver says, And so LaRusso says, Do we have a problem here? And Seaver says, Yeah, we got a problem here. How could you take me out of that game yesterday? Do you realize that if I lost 100 games in a row, I would still be an over 500 pitcher. How could right. you take me out of that game yesterday? 
And so then LaRusso says to him, well, uh, you know, it was it's been a tough day for you, uh, the weather and everything. And plus, it was a bunt situation. And Augusto, was his, he's a left-hander, like a cat off the mound. And Seaver looks at him, he says, wait a minute. You're telling me you took me out of the game because you didn't think I could field my position? Wow. And so That's crazy. They went back and forth. And, and LaRusso told me, it's in the book too, LaRusso said from that day on, he was the only pitcher I would always ask before I took him out of a game. That's a harbinger, and that story is a harbinger of things to come because that's a very common uh, managerial move today. I have Bill Madden with me, author of the book, Tom Seaver, Terrific Life. Uh, you know what's funny, Bill, is that for you know Mets fans know how important Seaver is, but as you get to a new generation, one that's more statistically inclined, more that's one that's grown up in free agency where – it's more about the laundry. The players become very interchangeable fantasy baseball. Like what would you say to them? You know, Seaver statistically is only worth so many, you know, wins a a year, you know, not just, you know, now they look at things with war and everything, but he was important. He was the heart and soul of the Mets. Tell those kind of guys why, because sometimes I wonder if they understand it was more than just baseball. I think when Seaver was traded, there are generations of Mets fans that I've talked to that stopped rooting for the team because of that it's I don't think I've heard of any other player in at least my generation or people that I talk to that I can hear that well I stopped rooting for the Mets because of Seaver I don't think people always understand how important he was you know well, to that, you, to got, the Mets. you got to understand before Seaver got there the Mets were the laughing stock of baseball they had never had a winning season they lost a record 120 games in their first season in 1962 now he shows up on the scene in 1967 and one of the things that really distressed him was the fact that the writers of that time, the beat writers, were all still writing about Casey Stengel and the lovable Mets and the uh, lovable losers and all the funny quotes that Stengel had about his team, the disparaging quotes, I might add. And Seaver, he didn't get it. He couldn't, he couldn't understand this culture that it was fostering in this clubhouse. And finally, he, uh, this is a, he's a brash rookie now. And he said to he, at one point in time, he said in the clubhouse to a lot of his teammates, he said, you know what? I don't get it. And the writers were there too. And he said, I don't get you guys. He says, you you keep talking about Casey Stengel and the lovable losers, Marvin, Marvin Throwberry and Rod Keneal. I had nothing to do with that. And I don't want anything to do with it. He says, I, I've been a winner all my life. Little league, right. high school, college, everything I've done, I've always been a winner. And I don't intend to start losing now. And from that point on, the culture started changing in the Mets clubhouse because Seaver was such a presence. And of course he backed it up by winning rookie of the year honors in 1967. And um, I think the bottom line on all of this is that Seaver gave the Mets credibility until he came along. They had no credibility. They were a terrible team and they were, like I said, a laughing stock. And that's why he wound up getting the nickname, the franchise, because he was the franchise and uh, it never changed even after they traded him. And even after they left him unprotected again in 1983 in the free agent compensation and lost, lost him a second time. Uh, he, um, he remains the greatest player that they ever had. And one of the things that really bothered Seaver was the fa- fact that, he felt he never got the proper respect from the Mets ownership, whether it was uh, whether it was uh, 
M. Donald Grant uh, in the early years who traded him, or whether it was even, even when uh, Fred Wilpon and D Nelson Doubleday brought the team, he never felt the Wilpons properly respected him. And um, I talk about that in the book, especially in the last chapter, because to his dying day, he never really reconciled with the Mets. Interesting. That's very interesting because there's a lot of what ifs with Seaver. What if they had invested a little bit in the early 70s teams? Now, the Yogi teams had injuries. We know that. Uh, they probably were a bat short. You could even debate. Look, Rusty Staub had a big 73, great hitter. They gave up a lot of young players for him. You know, things might have been different. Here's a guy that's winning 20 games with a pretty much a 500 team that couldn't score, losing 10, 11 games with a sub-2 ERA. There's a guy that could win 25, dare I say 30, if he's playing for Oakland or the Big Red Machine or the Pirates or something like that. Was there ever a what-if with Seaver? Or did he didn't even get into that? Because the what if is this guy could have won significantly more games if he played for an adequate offensive team during his well, early well, years. It was it was a minor miracle that he won as many games as he did. I'll give you a stat that will pretty much sum this whole thing up. Seaver's 3.94 run support is the third lowest all time in baseball history behind Nolan Ryan and Gaylord Perry both fellow Hall of Famers. He had 105 starts in which he pitched nine innings or more and gave up one run or less. Wow. And in those, in the, in those 105 starts, he was 90 and three with 12 no decisions. Wow. And that just shows you how good he had to be. Wow. Yeah. It, it puts it in perspective and uh, you know, look, he got a world series with the 69 miracle team, but it could have been even that much more. It, it, it is pretty amazing. Is there also a what if? Now, I understand he got left unprotected. It was a little bit of a wonky thing with the free agency compensation after 83. And let's remember, they keep Seaver. Maybe Doc doesn't get brought up right away in 84. Who, who knows? So many things happen when you play the what if game. But maybe the Mets win a World Series in 85. Uh, maybe he's part of the 86 team and ends his career on a high note. Did he ever think about that? Did he ever talk about that what if? Because in some ways that what if could be more painful because it was so unexpected. He knew he was getting traded in 77. It had to happen. It was, right. it was it, bad form. Yeah. yeah, he had to go. But in 83 into 84, you thought you were past that, I guess. Did he, did he, did he have that what if? Because that 86 situation, it's so odd seeing him in the other dugout. I know he didn't play in that series, but... Red Sox had other side uh, breaking a 17 year drought. Uh, it's just strange. I wonder if there's a, what if there in a little bit. Of well, there, there was a, what if there, and I was involved in the middle of it. <laughs> this was 86 now. And he, he had accomplished everything he needed to accomplish in Chicago with the white Sox, including most importantly, his 300th win against the Yankees in 85 at Yankee stadium. But now it's 86. He's not pitching particularly well. And the white Sox are going nowhere. They're no longer the team that he joined two years earlier. And so he, and he was homesick. He wanted to get back to New York. So he asked Kenny Harrelson, the general manager of the White Sox at the time, if he could work out a trade to get him back to New York. So Harrelson's first call was to the Mets. And Frank Cashin, who was still the general manager there, was obviously still upset with himself for having left him unprotected three years earlier. And Frank was all for bringing Seaver back, even though he was 
not even close to the pitcher he had been. However, Davey Johnson nixed the idea. They had Doc Gooden and they had and they had um they had uh, Darling and they had Ojeda and they had Sid Fernandez. And Davey just didn't want Seaver on the team. And he told Cashin that. So Cashin reluctantly told Harrelson, I can't make this deal. So then Seaver called me and he said, I need a favor. And I said, What do you need? And he said, Can you call Steinbrenner for me and ask him if he'd be interested in bringing me to the Yankees? Tell him I'd like to finish my career and I, I need to get back to New York and I would love to finish my career with the Yankees. So I thought about this and I said, yeah, I'll call him. I said, this is right out of Georgia's playbook. Sure. The Mets, the Mets are taking sure. over the town here. This is 1986 now. The Mets are taking over the town and Steinbrenner would like nothing better than to steal some of their thunder by bringing Tom Seaver back to New York for the third time only as a Yankee. However, when I called Steinbrenner, I was surprised that he was only lukewarm to this idea. Hmm. And eventually, the deal got hung up over a shortstop named Carlos Martinez. He was a six foot six shortstop. He was one of the Yankees' top prospects. And Harrelson had to have him in the deal, or else he wasn't going to make it. And so they're going back and forth. And Seaver asked, and Harrelson asked me to call George and see if I could talk him into some other player. And George says, no, I can't give up Miss Martinez. My baseball people tell me he's going to be a great player. I said, George, I said, we're talking Tom Seaver here. Tom Seaver. And you're getting hung up over this shortstop who probably won't play shortstop when he gets to the major leagues. He's too big. That's what all the scouts are telling me. Well, no, George wouldn't do it. So Harrelson calls me back the next day and he said, I'm sorry, Billy, I couldn't do the deal. George would not give up Martinez. And I'm going to trade him to the Red Sox for Steve Lyons. And that's what happened. Wow. He comes to the Red Sox. And here's the ultimate irony. Carlos Martinez was traded by George to Harrelson a couple months later. And he never played shortstop. In the he, never he could have been a GM, Bill. I mean, think about today. Writers helping make change. It's a different time. It's a fun time. And, you know, things are so different now. I'm talking to Bill Madden, a uh, longtime uh, journalist, New York Daily News, author of the book, Tom, Ter- Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life. Uh, let me ask you this, because I brought this up when Seaver passed and I was having a show and I was thinking about the 77 deal. Like I said, he had to be traded. Things had gotten bad, bad form by the Mets. But look, he was starting to enter his later prime Seaver and he was still Tom Seaver. But let's face it, after 77, 78, Bill, he wasn't the same pitcher like he was from 69 to 77. I know the deal looks bad in hindsight, but look at the form. They got Pat Zachary young pitcher coming off pitching in the world series, not Seaver, but really good Two outfielders that had some speed and pop in uh, Steve Henderson and Dan Norman. And Doug Flynn was a throw in. When you think about Seaver and the Mets really boxing every, everything into a corner where they had to deal them. They're lucky. They even got that bill. That's not a terrible deal from, from a, a, maybe I'm looking at it from 2020 baseball standpoint, but it's not a terrible deal from a fundamental standpoint, it's training Tom Seaver, but what could you have expected, I guess, is what I'm saying. Well, yeah, I mean, they got four players in the deal and uh, three of them were genuine major league players. Pat Zachary was, he's not a number one pitcher, but he was a, a solid number three pitcher. And the key guy in that deal was Steve Henderson. He was an outfielder who was a potential top prospect. And he was a top prospect in the Reds' farm system and the Mets envisioned him as being a really solid 
right fielder with power and a little bit of speed, but he never materialized into that player. And so it, in retrospect, it turned out to be just a so-so deal. And meanwhile, they traded their franchise pitcher and Seaver went on to win a whole bunch of games for the Reds over the next five years. Did he enjoy broadcasting? I remember him with Fran Healy. And I always, the thing that made me laugh about Seaver is that it was so hard at seeing when he would look at the numbers on the screen and he would see pitchers with ERAs of six. And I mean, we're going back now, 2004, 2005, you know, we're talking more modern game. I mean, God, I mean, I'm sure I don't know how much baseball he watched before he passed, but it's even different, even more different now that that was like the good old days. You're looking at the early 2000s when it came to how pitchers were you know, going longer and whatnot, but it seemed like other than your Pedro Martinez's or your John Smoltz's or your really top, top pitchers, he had a hard time really digesting what he was watching. Did he enjoy announcing? Was it something that he liked or was it kind of like hard for him? Because all these guys were, he was better than almost everybody he, he broadcasted. I mean, very few are better than him, if any, you know? Well, so, I think he, he enjoyed it. Um, he especially enjoyed working with Rizzuto because he said, mm. as he says in the book, he said Rizzuto was a whole different trip for him because you never knew where he was going on any given night. Uh, but he had, you know, he had the privilege, as he put it, of working with Vince Scully on the game of the week. And um, he enjoyed broadcasting, but he wasn't fulfilled by it. And uh, as Nancy talks about in the book, his wife, Nancy, um, who was, by the way, great. We, I had some really great interviews with her. And she was telling me the story. Uh, it was um, around uh, 1999, somewhere in there. Uh, she said, she says, I could see that he wasn't really fulfilled by the broadcasting. There was something going on in his head. I could see, because Seaver always had a plan of what he was going to do next. And it was, everything was always carefully studied on his part. So she says, one day he walks into the kitchen and he says to her, I've decided we're going to go to California and I'm going to, I'm going to get buy, make a vineyard out there and I'm going to grow grapes and make wine. And Nancy <laughs> says, he could have knocked me off the, t- off the floor with a feather when he t- lays this thing on me. He says, she says, I, I talked to him about getting therapy, but, but he didn't want to do that. She says, at least he wasn't trading me in for a younger wife. That's right. But that's that right. was what he, and that's, you know, he had an agri- agricultural. And he was good at it. And that's the thing. I mean, he, he was a whole, I mean, I, I, I didn't drink his wine, but I've heard he was very good. People enjoyed his product and he took it seriously. It wasn't just dabbling. He, he went oh, all in. That's, he, that's the kind of guy he was. He said to me, he said, I, I did not go into this to get my face on the cover of wine spectator. He did a lot of studying about, about the winemaking the grapes and everything else. He studied books and handbooks and brochures and he interviewed, talked to people in the wine business. Rusty Staub was a big help to him and, on this whole thing. And so when he decided to do this, he, like I said, he came from agriculture with a family. His father was in the raisin business in Fresno. In fact, his father was credited with putting raisins into breakfast cereal. Hmm. Uh, I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that either until I researched it. But anyway, um, so agriculture was in his blood. And when he was living in Greenwich, he had this huge garden in the backyard where he grew all kinds of things back there. And uh, that's where he first got contracted Lyme disease, which later Uh 
was what did him in at the end of his life. Uh, sure. Lyme disease came back to really bite him and attack his brain cells was really what happened. But anyway, um, so he, when he, when he, you know, he, he went out to Napa Valley, he bought all this acreage on the top of Diamond Mountain, which is a prime Cabernet Sauvignon territory out there. Diamond Mountain is where some of the best wineries are. And he hired himself the top vineyard manager in, in Napa Valley, who Rusty Staub introduced him to. And then once this guy, Jim Barber was his name, once they found the plot of land where they were going to make the, make the, build the vineyard, then Tom asked a few other people and he got a guy named Thomas Brown, who was the premier winemaker in Napa Valley. And between Barber and Brown, he had, as Nancy called, his new team. And the three of them, really, uh, he created one of the top Cabernets in, in, all of, in all of Napa Valley. He got a 97 on the Wine Spectator about 10 years ago. Wow. It was amazing. It was amazing how he could get into something uh, else and be that successful. Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life, Bill Madden with me, the author. A couple of uh, questions before we, we wrap up. Uh, Bill, I got the impression the last, you know, maybe after his broadcasting career, yeah, he would know what was going on with the league, but I think he was over baseball. That was my outsider impression. He wasn't into it the same way. Is that true or is that just the wrong perception? When I hear him interview, it's like, yeah, I watch box scores, but it didn't seem like it did it for him. It was, he wasn't engrossed in watching the world series or even staying around what the Mets were doing or things like that. You know? Yeah. There were a lot of things going on in his life right then. Um, Like I told you, the Lyme disease came back only he didn't realize it had come back starting in around the early two thousands. He was starting to have memory issues. He was starting to have um, equilibrium issues occasionally. And, um, he was, as he said to me, he said, after this kept going on for a few years, getting progressively worse, he says, I was terribly, I was terrified. He says, I thought I might've had a stroke or I might have to be getting Alzheimer's disease. And finally, what, what happened one day was uh, he was in his kitchen and his head uh, vineyard foreman walked into the kitchen and he didn't recognize him. He didn't know who he was. And that's when Nancy said, you're going to a doctor. We're going to find out what's wrong with you. And there's a lot of other things that went on during that period. It's in the last chapter of this book, which was, which was a very painful chapter for me to write because he was my friend. But I felt, you know, if you're going to do this book properly, you have to talk about everything and, yep. and, and what happened to him at the end of his life. So anyway, the doctors told him, he said, well, the good news is you don't have Alzheimer's and you didn't have a stroke. The bad news is your Lyme disease came back and because you didn't treat it, it's gotten to be, you know, the damage it's done to your brain is not going to be repaired and it's only going to get progressively worse. So when you say he wasn't in, in, you know, he seemed disinterested in baseball towards the end of his his broadcasting career and after he left and once he went out to the vineyard, he was, he was disinterested in baseball, but he also was progressively losing his memory about things about his own career. I went out and uh, interviewed him for a documentary that I did on him, uh, which was the basis of this book, actually. And in 2016, that's when I, well, I spent a lot of time with him in 2016 and 2017 out in Calistoga. 
the difference between 2016 and 2017 was dramatic. In 2017, wow. he couldn't remember anything about his career, the 300th win, nothing. Wow. And it was very sad. Yep. It, you get to see a different uh, side of Tom Seaver. So to wrap up here, Bill, in the book again, Tom Seaver, Terrific Life, Bill Madden, I, I really appreciate you spending so much time with me here. Uh, I know this is a debate, and, and it would be a fun debate, maybe more of a talk radio debate, but is Seaver the best right-handed pitcher of all time? And you know what? If you look at the top, you want to just sort them by whatever metric you want to sort them by. A lot of pre-integration players. Is he one of the best pitchers of all time? I mean, it's, it's a fair debate. I was looking at it this morning on Baseball Re- Reference, and I'm like, you know, you take the fact that some of these pitchers ahead of him were pre-integration, pre you know, sophisticated or more sophisticated baseball. Um, is Seaver one of the best right-handers all time and maybe one of the best pitchers all time when you factor everything in? I would maintain he was one of the top five pitchers of all time. I put him in there with Christy Mathewson, with Walter Johnson, with, um, um, well. Anybody better that you watched or you covered? I guess I'll even go further because, I mean, you saw, you've saw you seen a lot. You've seen a lot of players. Of his own era, he was clearly the best. And I mean, he pitched with Gibson, Carlton, Palmer, sure. Sutton. Sure. They're all in the Hall of Fame. But he was by, he was a step above all of them. And I think one of the reasons was because he was the smartest player I ever covered. I mean, he was a, he had a brilliant mind and he knew he 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 was he was an artist out there on the mound and he, he knew how to get batters out when he didn't have his best stuff and he was he was able to dissect all the batters weaknesses and um and i'll give you the stat that i think would sum up why i think he's in the top five of all time there are only two pitchers in the history of baseball with 300 wins 3,000 strikeouts and an era of under three and those two pitchers are tom Seaver and walter johnson yeah that 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 tells you all and i'll tell you what would be interesting with the new ownership here with the mets with some of the same, not to the same level of the narrative, lovable losers like when Seaver came in, but the Mets have had a really bad, you know, Q rating, if we want to use that. Him, you know, he's passed. The owner wants to put a statue out there to Seaver, maybe symbolically. I know he wasn't respected perhaps the way he wanted while he was still alive, but now with the new owner and maybe with the right honorary type of situation, his memory can ring in a new era of Mets baseball where excellence is now maybe more of the priority because it hasn't been all the time spotty over the last two decades. I mean, it'd be ironic if that's, you know, the respect he wanted, maybe he gets now after he passed, unfortunately. Well, Steve Cohen's got to get that statue done, man. He's got to get that out in front of city field somewhere because one of the things that Seaver privately noted, he never came said this publicly, but if you remember all those new ballparks that were, built in the last 20 years every one of them had statues in front of them of their greatest players city field was the one exception they built city field and not Seaver, but a friend of his who was with him that day told me this story and it's in the back of the book and it's in the last chapter Seaver was invited back for the opening of city field um and uh to throw out the first pitch with piazza uh, by this time, his memory was really going on him, but he was there. And the t- 
this friend who told me the story was with him. They walked into the city field, into the rotunda there, and all Seaver could see was Jackie Robinson everywhere and Brooklyn Dodger stuff everywhere. And the big Jackie Robinson rotunda and the giant 42 in the lobby. And Seaver took the, turned to the guy and he said, you know, Jackie was a great player and he was an inspiration to the game. He was a pivotal player in, in, in the racial history of the game but I don't recall him ever playing for the Mets. Right. right. And that was why he felt, and that also that day, uh, the Mets opened up City Field. They didn't have a, they didn't even have their Hall of Fame room yet. Sure. Sure. That was a big, that was a big thing with the fans. Well, the hope is that this will happen. I think it will happen. And hopefully at some point in the next 12 months, we'll be able to have fans get back out to the ballpark so bill you're on the tour now obviously the book is available on amazon costco anywhere where fine books are sold the book is great tom siever terrific life what's next for you anything you want the listeners to know about things you've got going on you know obviously you have a ton of other works that are great steinbrenner just one of them uh willie mays the willie mays book as well so what, what else you have going on well um i'm not sure what my next book is going to be uh i'm right now in the business of trying to sell as many Seaver books as I can. So <laughs> you tell be a all your friends and listeners to go out there and, and the best Christmas present they could buy. There it is. Got it right here. There it is. For those oh, who, you know. Terrific life. Terrific life. Bill, you have been generous with your time. You're awesome. The Steinbrenner book was great. I know Mets fans don't want to hear that, but that was great. Let's keep in touch. Thank you again. And happy holidays. All right, my friend. Sure. Thank you. Same to you. And that was Bill Madden. Bill Madden, author of the book. Tom Seaver, terrific life. Great stuff. Interesting. Get to hear about Tom Seaver as a person. I think it's a, I think this was different. I really did. So anyway, let's take a quick break. Wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. We know Tom Seaver's Hall of Fame numbers on the field, but former teammate Skip Lockwood joined the Talking Mets podcast to share how Tom helped him during his career. I, I can't tell you how much importance uh, Tom Seaver uh, had on my career, helping me to refine my skills and understand the science of pitching. Not that, that, that pitching is scientific, but to understand why you're getting players out, and what you're doing that's impacting the, the movement of the baseball, and pitching of the, the count situation, and who, who should be started off with a curveball and who shouldn't and why. He, he was such an architect in a, in a baseball uniform. Um, he made a big difference in my career. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. Uh, I really enjoyed Bill Madden. I hope you did too. I know there was a little bit of a, a Yankees connection to it but let's face it uh, the Yankees played into uh, some of Tom's uh, later career story whether it be as a broadcaster or trying to get over there to win his 300th game you know his American League years with the White Sox and what have you so hope you enjoyed that and that's my gift to you all the loyal listeners of the Talking Mets podcast I want to thank everybody again and I don't know if we'll talk before the new year I have a feeling we may I have a feeling we're going to have to jump in and do a program uh, at some point. I'm not sure if the free agency market will will move that fast, uh, but there's a possibility, and there's some rumblings that 
you know, things may be coming down with the Mets, so we'll see. But the plan is to give you this end-of-the-year present, talking about the great Tom Seaver with a, a great columnist, someone in the industry for a long time who I've enjoyed reading his work, whether it be non-Mets-related stuff like Steinbrenner book to this. So uh, check it out, Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life. Bill Madden is the author. You can get that on Amazon or a bookstore near you. I highly recommend it. I think it'll give you a real good, as I said throughout the piece, uh, perspective on Seaver off the field and and maybe round out your knowledge base of Tom and uh, and what you have heard from the media, from watching him, whatever, and, uh, and put a, a cap on. Unfortunately, someone who passed too soon and probably will be, not probably, will be, honored by the Mets coming into 2021. I think they'll probably wait till there's a little bit more of a a fan presence at the ballpark whenever that will be to unveil possibly a Tom Seaver statue or something else. So it'll be, uh, unfortunately, he won't be there, but it's long overdue. And I think the new owner, the one thing I can guarantee, I think the new owner, Steve Cohen, will do is connect Mets history with City Field, with the fan base in a far better manner than anything that was done over the past. Well, City Field's what now? 11 years old. Going to be 12 years old. It feels like I, I was at the first exhibition game. Was it the Red Sox? I know St. John's played, but I went, and I still remember where it was almost still being built. There was still some feel of construction going on on a Friday night, and uh, and I believe the Mets were opening up. Did they open up on the road that year? I can't remember. It's 2009. It's It seems like yesterday. It's not. It's a long time ago. And uh, and you, it's amazing because, you know, uh, Chase Stadium opened up in 1964, and you know, 11 years in, you're in 1975. So you kind of put it in perspective and how quickly time flies and how, how quickly these ballparks become maybe with technology antiquated. And you'll, you'll be interesting with some of the new ballparks potentially coming out over the next five to ten years, how, how they look and what they have as far as amenities and, and how long City Field will be before it becomes kind of an old ballpark. So just something to think about off the cuff. But uh, and the plan is to take a break till after New Year's, get back into it after the, uh, the holidays are over. Best laid plans, you know that. If there is big action, if there's free agency – um, I'll be here. We'll see. But if not, I want to thank everybody again for their support of this show. The reviews have been outstanding. You go to Apple Podcast. We've got a number of five-star reviews, overwhelming support. You got your dissenters, and that's okay because whether you like the show, don't like the show, agnostic, want to see it do better and improve, I want to hear from you. As long as it's fair, I want to hear from you. I know it's. I know sometimes we get put a little bit under attack because... We're different here, and we try to be a little different, and that's okay. I don't think it's always fair, but that's okay. It's a free country, and, uh, you know, keep coming at me with what you got, and sincerely, I want to thank everybody for participating in this show, listening, interacting over email, uh, whatever, Twitter, whatever it may be, because I do appreciate it. And I wish you a great holiday, happy new year, and we'll be back soon. You know that for sure. We'll be back soon. I want to thank Bill Madden. Of course, the book is Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life. Bill Madden is the author. Of course, you can interact with me at Mike Silva Media on Twitter. Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. And you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. You know the shtick here, guys. Be well. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy your holiday. We'll be back with another podcast pretty soon. Until then, take care, everybody. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.